Hello and welcome. It is Kate. Yeah. And Mags. <laughs> welcome back to our podcast, Lotus, where we discuss everything uh, women plus reproductive health related. So we're very happy to have people listening. And I think before we kind of dive into today's topic, Mags and Kira, why don't you guys jump in and talk about a few of our updates with our venture before we get into today's topic yes so i'll start with a very exciting announcement which is that we won the harvard health lab pitch competition and we were awarded a very generous funding amount of twenty thousand dollars so we're really excited that this will help us get our venture off the ground kind of encourage our software development speed that process up a tiny bit so that we can get our community flourishing as soon as possible yeah so exciting that was such a great day <laughs> and it feels so long ago i know like, I I was know, like, last week. Like, exactly a it week was, ago like we were there it was exactly a week ago <laughs> yeah, yeah also just talk about more about our app development mm-hmm. we are working with eliza who's our incredible software engineer to sort of expedite the process of, of creating our app we've also recruited a new ui ux developer her name's zanon who who's at the grad school of design here at harvard so Super exciting stuff to sort of get our app off the ground and get it launched in the summer. So exciting. Yeah. So a lot of good things coming. Good things in the future. Yes. For today's episode, I think kind of going forward, we were thinking about starting each episode with some sort of fact or statistic that will mm-hmm. kind of lead us into that episode's topic. And so today, just doing a little bit of research before, you know, starting this and recording, It may be surprising for some to hear, but infertility rates range roughly from about 42% to 66% among male childhood cancer survivors and roughly 11% to 26% among female childhood cancer survivors, Mm. which I don't know if that's higher than I think or lower. I guess the the male statistic sounds pretty high to me. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Like, I wonder... Like, what the difference is in treatment for men versus women. Right. Like yeah, and I know just... Outcomes. Yes, and I just know from my experience, a lot of it goes back to the type of chemotherapy that you have mm-hmm. normally mm-hmm. or what type of treatment you have. So a lot of times, like, complications and infertility aren't the result of the cancer itself. It's the result of the treatment, which is, you know, a whole nother discussion, really. That's, like, a very, right. a very, very big topic. Not but that I'm looking at it, like... 11 to 26 percent among females as well i mean that's one in ten to one in four mm-hmm. yeah like female patients exactly. that are undergoing treatment at a young age that's that's exactly. huge i mean both of those yeah. numbers are so high so that kind of leads me into our discussion today which is all about myself <laughs> i'm not totally used to talking about myself but excited to share this and think it's really important so um i kind of briefly mentioned this in our first episode but i am a cancer survivor and have subsequently been diagnosed with ovarian failure and infertility so i'll kind of just be diving in into how i've gotten to this point in my life and what's you know what i've dealt with (laughs) i guess Mm -hmm. and i think just kind of before i start I've really learned how to talk about my cancer story. Like, it has kind of become, I don't want to say, like, run-of-the-mill, just, like, (laughs) elevator pitch kind of at this point, but I've been doing advocacy for a really long time Mm -hmm. since I was, like, roughly around 14. I started working for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I was their honored hero. I 
did a lot of speaker events for them. I've spoken in front of like 5,000 people before. Did you so, just drop in there? You were their whoa. honor hero? <laughs> yeah. Well, that hasn't no, gone before. Oh, yeah. It's, this was a long time ago. I, yeah, I was their honored hero. So I like did a bunch of speaking engagements and I would go to like corporate events and just wow. talk to people and be like, this is me. Like, give us money. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I've done a lot of advocacy, especially when I was younger. And then also in college, I work for an organization called Kids Be Cancer, which advocates for the passage of bills actually that would increase childhood cancer funding and quality really in terms of drug development but that's again a whole nother big topic so long story short i have been pretty good at talking about the like cancer side of things however i have never really spoken about this side of my story and i think as most cancer survivors will agree cancer never goes away you know once you're diagnosed once you go through treatment once you are in survivorship it never goes away and it completely impacts the trajectory of your life and for me that really was grounding my reproductive health and i think i'm coming to this point in my life where I've learned that I have a story and I have a voice that needs to be heard. And Mm -hmm. if this means like being a little bit vulnerable and sharing this side of things, honestly, then so be it in hoping that this will inspire others and connect us in conversation. And I also think it's worth noting that there's definitely this weird line between privacy and, you know, being personal with these very, very intense topics. But then there's also the other flip side of that, which is being an advocate and sharing your story and using your voice. And so there's kind of this line between keeping things to yourself and also being open about it. And it's hard to juggle that line. Absolutely. Um, So I don't know. I think it's kind of a learning experience for me and for all of us as we share our stories going forward. But that's definitely going to be something that we're going to kind of talk about. No, I I totally agree. And... Before you start, just thank you so much for being this vulnerable and for being, you know, this person that wants to advocate for others in your scenario and other situations. So thank you. Thank you. And we're so excited to hear your story and everything that goes along with it to start building this community. Absolutely. Well, so this is our second episode here at Lotus, and while every situation is different and every woman plus's story is going to be different, I think we will certainly come to see that there are some universal themes among these stories and among these conversations. And so while I'm sure that probably very few of our listeners, if at all, can relate to the situational facts of my story, I'm pretty confident that almost everyone listening can relate to the feelings and emotions that we'll be talking about. So I will dive right in. But basically, my whole story starts back in 2007. I was diagnosed with acute monocytic leukemia. I was a pretty normal kid, was, you know, active and had a lovely life. I have a wonderful family. I was pretty normal, but ultimately started showing some symptoms. And after a few weeks of having misdiagnoses of just common ailments they realized that it was actually aml and that pretty much forever changed my life and so i immediately began chemotherapy and treatment at memorial sloan kettering cancer center in new york so i was 
five years old at the time, uh, going through this treatment, going through this therapy, and practically living out of the hospital in New York. And after a few rounds of chemotherapy, it pretty much became apparent that ultimately I would need to have a bone marrow transplant to save my life. I was really, really beyond fortunate enough to have my younger sister be a 10 out of 10 match, which meant that her bone marrow and her blood and all of that, all the criteria were 100% identical to that Mm -hmm. of mine, which meant that that improved my prognosis considerably. So ultimately, you know, maybe she's listening to this. Hello, Caroline, younger (laughs) sister. (laughs) Both literally and figuratively, she saved my life. And I received that bone marrow transplant in November of 2007. And Normally, the chemotherapy that's given right before your bone marrow transplant tends to be some of the most toxic, and also treatments for childhood cancer already are extremely underfunded, are very, very old, and very, very toxic. And this is a huge problem, and I could spend a very long time talking about this. We could have a whole podcast series about this, but it is a big issue. And so, unfortunately, there was this possibility that the chemotherapy I received before this bone marrow transplant would affect a lot of my major organs. And one of those organs was my reproductive organs. So, basically, what chemotherapy does is it destroys everything in its path, you know? It's a very toxic chemical that just wipes out everything. And so, when my parents were kind of considering all of this at the time, it really came down to ultimately what was going to keep me alive. And that was going you know, forward with the bone marrow transplant and getting this really, really toxic therapy. And so as a result, I do suffer from a lot of long-term side effects. And again, kind of, we mentioned this briefly before, but it's really interesting because a lot of the time, long-term side effects are from treatment, not cancer, Mm -hmm. which, you know, goes to show that there needs to be a lot done in the treatment field, evidently. But for me, it became evident as I continued on with my life and follow-up appointments that I suffered from premature ovarian failure, which means that my ovaries just stopped functioning, the chemotherapy destroyed them, wiped them out, and subsequently that means that I entered early menopause. Um, So sometime after that chemotherapy, probably before age 10, which is crazy to think about because menopause is already such like a big deal for women, women plus who have a menstrual cycle and then eventually go through menopause, but to be 10 years old and having to do that, I honestly don't really remember like too much about how that really affected how I felt because for a lot of it, this was just my reality. Like I've never lived in a state where my hormone levels are normal. I've never lived in a state with like a perfectly functioning reproductive system. So I honestly don't really know what's normal in a weird way. It's insane too. I know it even at our pitch competition this past week that there is a whole venture that was focused on menopause and trying to help you know identify different manifestations of symptoms and I can't even imagine you know being 10 years old and having unidentifiable symptoms that you're not really sure what's going on right must have been so yeah looking back retrospectively I think I can definitely think of a few things like with temperature regulation and hot flashes also kind of different types of weight gain and weight fluctuations and just stuff like that looking back I'm like oh interesting maybe that maybe that was you know all goes back to your hormone levels but so would you be comfortable sharing what exactly premature ovarian failure is absolutely so 
premature ovarian failure, if you Google it, it might come up as being synonymous with early menopause. But basically, it is a condition where your ovaries don't produce the normal amounts of estrogen or released eggs regularly. And infertility is almost always the outcome of that. And so for women with premature ovarian failure, I don't, you know, I don't have exact numbers, but from just past research I've done, most people that have premature ovarian failure are cancer survivors because chemotherapy really does just tend to wipe out, or specific types of chemotherapy tends to really wipe out your ovaries. So for me, as a result, my body does not produce estrogen or progesterone naturally, which means that I've been on hormone replacement therapy since before 13, 12. I was on like a regular hormonal pill and then I switched to birth control so that I could get a period and kind of have these manufactured hormones in my body that would then allow me to have a period. Most female people are born with one to two million eggs, but by puberty, this number tends to decrease to about 300,000 to 400,000. But then by your 20s, that number should be around 150,000 to 300,000. So that's a lot of eggs. You know, everyone's like, you're born with all the eggs you got. And that's a lot. But for me and for people with premature ovarian failure, that number is actually undetectable, is how it shows up when you do blood work. So not even anywhere close to that. So how exactly, you know, did I find this out? I kind of put the pieces together myself. Um, Unfortunately, I was never really told by my family or my doctors about this. It was something that I actually had to figure out myself, which was really really tough it's just so awful yeah would they, would they just not like provide like the would they not tell you about your blood work or like the details of yeah that? i think there was kind of two sides of it i think on the one hand my parents were really trying to protect me um mm-hmm. and i think I mean, especially 10. after yeah you know when you're this young and right. my whole childhood had been revolving around cancer and for the first time I was you know going to school I had friends I was playing soccer I was like doing all these normal things so I think my parents wanted me to have as much of a normal life as I could um and I you know I did I resumed to quote-unquote normal life but again no cancer survivor will tell you that there is normal life after cancer but so I think on the one hand it was my parents trying to protect me but on the other side of that my medical team really just never was explicit with this information and you know they told me that i was on birth control and that i would you know have to i've taken pills every day of my life since Mm -hmm. i was five i've never not been on some sort of medication so Mm -hmm. i was pretty used to taking pills (laughs) to say the least and you know they had kind of told me that i would need to start taking birth control and um, getting a period but i didn't really know why and i was just kind of like all right you know, I knew there was something slightly wrong with me, but I didn't know the extent to which the damage had been done. And so I kind of just put the pieces together. I pretty much realized with, you know, my young, curious brain that, you know, if I was on birth control, birth control kind of prevents pregnancy. But if I needed to be on birth control to have a period my brain was like, well, does that mean I don't get a period? And then I kind of put the pieces together that, you know, if I'm not getting a period, what does that mean? And then basically just through my own research, which is really scary and 
you know, kind of horrifying to think back on now, but most of my research was done through Google and <laughs> like digging through my old medical files because I really did not feel comfortable talking about this because it felt like it was such a secret. Of misinformation yeah. out there and there's a lot of scary things. I think you found some yeah. pretty Crazy. horrifying <laughs> my things God. Yeah. Absolutely insane. Yeah, so I think you know, as a young person looking on Google for medical resources and help must have been terrifying. So I'm excited that we're trying to change this by cultivating yes. a platform for women to talk about their own experiences and support one another by providing resources and things like that. I think it's misinformation is such a big, such a big issue. And yeah, I know Kira like found some crazy crazy people on Hypnosis. facebook and reddit and all of that who are not promoting great things uh, but i think ultimately yeah our platform is hoping to change that and i hope that we can provide you know clear resources for people that need it and you know can at least alleviate that intermediate step in thinking okay where do i go who do i talk to like okay, here's some resources, here's some article, this is what you should read, this is who you should talk to. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much figured it out when I was 15, but I didn't really have a conversation with my parents about it until I was 18 or 19. Wow, and I, yeah, I'm just thinking, like, if everyone around you is trying to keep this a secret, your medical team, your parents, it's like, yeah. well, how are you supposed to bring this up? That must have been so uncomfortable. Right. And it took a lot of time and therapy, lol, but like eventually I was kind of able to slowly start bringing it up, but mm -hmm. the sad reality is that it was entirely on me and that right. burden and that secrecy mm. was placed on me and it made me feel like I had something wrong right. and that it was something I couldn't bring up because nobody talked about it. Okay. That's so, so hard. Yeah, and you know, I think that resonates probably with a lot of people when it comes to reproductive health issues because if you don't have a community around you and that's you know this is not to the fault of my parents or to the fault of my medical team but just to the fault of the circumstance quite frankly and for a lot of people i think this is kind of the case yeah so i guess coming from that as we know in society that there's this stigma surrounding reproductive health and being really able to talk about your future I'm thinking to situations, and I'm not sure if, I'm, I mean, maybe this is universal to kind of all people, <laughs> that it's, there's a frequent question of, oh, what do you want your children's names to be? How many kids do you want? Yeah. I guess, you know, knowing what I do now about your history and your medical history and how intense and personal and difficult it's been through your whole life, basically, how these questions are coming up in your life, how maybe you've dealt or not dealt with them and how they make you feel yeah and i think this is this is definitely a big theme as we'll probably hear but i think one of the biggest consequences of having reproductive health conditions or concerns not consequences in a negative way just like you know the results the results there we go <laughs> is that it really can affect relationships mm -hmm. and whether that's with like romantic partners or friends or parents and kind of to your point yeah it's especially weird at our age I think being in this young 20 20 year old period right. where you know your friends will kind of joke and be like oh yeah what are what are you gonna name your kids how many how many babies do you mm -hmm. want in the like, future oh, when and do you want to have kids oh when you're right when I'm 29 like what? yeah <laughs> and it's like 
for people that do have reproductive health concerns or conditions, that answer is so complex Mm -hmm. and so multifaceted and layered and it just makes it very awkward Mm -hmm. (laughs) to have to kind of bring up because on the one hand you want to be optimistic and also talk lightheartedly about your future but when you have these conditions it's that's so much easier said than done so for me I think with friends I've been super lucky that I've had some of the best Mm -hmm. support systems from my friends I have really really close friends from home really close friends from school and I've been able to have conversations with them about it in a way that's just kind of like all of us just chatting and being open and honest and I think with my parents now things have really really improved um, especially because I've now become more comfortable talking about it so my parents are also some of my biggest supporters which I'm so grateful for and then I think kind of the other element of this is talking about this with like romantic partners and just that's a huge huge question for sure especially at our age where scary first of all that people are trying to get married and think long term and that's a a piece of it of course you you're thinking about a future family with this person how does that kind of look like like how do you talk about that if you don't mind me asking right i've been in past relationships before where i really wasn't like totally comfortable talking about it and i think just the relationship Mm -hmm. really didn't allow me to be super open and comfortable about it but Mm -hmm. For me, it was like I didn't want to bring up something that's so future when we're still young and like figuring things out. And it's difficult. I don't have any answers. I don't really know how people do it. I think, (laughs) you know, for me, for me, I just, you know, tried to be honest and Mm -hmm. talk about my feelings when it came to these things. And I think going forward, I've realized just, you know, from these past experiences in past relationships, I've realized that it is such a big part of my life so I have to be really open and honest about it and I know that there will be people down the line that can have these open and honest conversations mm-hmm. and that exists and right. the um, right kind of person <laughs> the right kind of person yeah it's also hard just at this age for anyone to talk about the future Absolutely. right it's already hard I'm thinking like in high school like your first like kind of sexual experiences are already difficult to even talk about or have Mm -hmm. or any of that realm is scary and new and anything in your younger ages so bringing it to the next step of you know real future that must be incredibly difficult kind of wrap it all up like past relationships parents and friends like all of these connections that you have in your life are affected by these things Mm -hmm. in ways that make it kind of uncomfortable to talk about but what I've learned is that you know I've kind of had to realize that this is just a part of my journey and this is just a part of my life and in order for me to move forward and to live as best I can and to you know live with a joy and grace and love that I want to create a space where people like me can have open and genuine conversations about these things and unfortunately I think I've realized that a lot of the time you have to become your own advocate. So for me, I started really obsessing over within the last few years, like clinical trials and any information I could get my hands on because I felt like there weren't enough resources and there already wasn't a space to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to a lot of different conversations, a lot of different appointments with different doctors. And 
it's slightly frustrating because I'm like, fuck you, medical system. Like, why weren't you my advocate? Like, why didn't you help right. me figure these like, things who out? Who was there to, to help you? And no one, you no it. one. Right. It was just you. <laughs> it was just me doing the research and trying to find someone that would help. So actually where I am right now, I'm currently doing some experimental fertility treatment that will hopefully kind of suss out the entire impact on my ovaries. And yeah, so I think it's been frustrating, but ultimately it's just a reality. And I think a reality for a lot of women plus who deal with these things because we know women's health is underserved and not totally underfunded underfunded researched (laughs) under researched and i think that's also right and i think that's also going to be really important in our mission is Mm. kind of not only just creating the space to talk about these things but also increasing awareness and hopefully funding for fertility for obgyn Mm. stuff for women plus specific research because it is so so important so yeah, that's kind of me. That's kind of my story. I think it's it's kind of funny and slightly emotional for me because I used to never be able to talk about these things without crying. Like I couldn't even say the word infertility without mm-hmm. tears like welling up in my eyes. And so it really wasn't until I met Miss Mags this <laughs> summer where we had a conversation about our reproductive health when I realized that I was a lot less alone than I had thought. And Obviously, people have very, very different diagnoses and very different concerns and very different conditions. But when you break that all down, we all are dealing with the same thoughts and emotions and feelings. And I think for me, our first conversation and then also ultimately we we brought in Kira and our other team members and who also have these similar concerns and conditions and feelings and thoughts and all this stuff. And I think for me, I just really quickly learned the power of conversation when it comes to connecting us all together. Mm-hmm. And it's made me feel so much less alone. I know, don't want to speak for you guys, but I'm sure it's made you guys Definitely. feel so much less alone. Definitely agree. <laughs> yeah. And so going forward, we're just really hoping that conversations like these can exponentially unite all women plus in discussing these things. So Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing and for being this vulnerable with us. I know as we try to build this platform that we're pioneering this vulnerability and there's yeah. not a space that we're jumping into and we're really we're creating our own space mm-hmm. here. So right. I thank you so much for going through this emotional story and all of the things that you're dealing with and continuously going through in for the sake of improving the dialogue and the connection and power of conversation among us i think that's a very noble thing and really just am so thankful and grateful for you for opening up about this and being so honest well i'm very very thankful to you guys and it was actually funny i was talking about this the other day with maybe my mom i forget but i was like it is crazy like a year ago I couldn't talk about these things. And now all of a sudden, I met two awesome people, <laughs> Kieran and Mags, and now we're, like, creating a venture about this. <laughs> we're talking about these. Like, how crazy is that? Like, in one year, I could go from not being able to talk about any of this to all of us creating this platform for conversations specifically about women plus reproductive health. It's I think it's, it's crazy. crazy. 
It's pretty crazy. So different. So different. Even just so six months. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Last semester, like things have been expedited so much. Crazy. Like, yeah. Honestly, Kate, like having you join our team has helped us so much. I think like you were the missing factor. Like for last semester, we got a lot of the thing, like a lot of things moving, a lot of things on the ground. But I think ultimately, like us three as a group has really been so helpful to just bounce and ideas off of everyone and it's been so great we've been making some good progress yeah. <laughs> so and a lot of good things coming up um, i just want to say that your vulnerability i think will be very inspiring for our listeners and future listeners and supporters just like pioneering the way like what mag said to like start these conversations um so it was incredible to hear your story thank you for well, sharing. And i love you both you guys are great. <laughs> we love you too really the reason why I can talk about this. So anyways, thank you to everybody that has listened to this episode. We look forward to talking again about some more personal anecdotes and stories. We also have some awesome guest speakers lined up as well, yes. which we're so thrilled about. Big names. So big, big people. Big people are coming. Uh, thank you again, Kate, so much. You're welcome. This has been fantastic. Yes. Awesome. To those listening, make sure to follow us on Instagram yes. at lotus.health.app. We'll be posting lots of new content. And yeah, thanks so much for listening. Yes, thank you. Thank you.